welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, welcome this morning. Welcome those who are joining us online. Uh, excited to have everyone here today uh, and be a part of what we're doing. You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 for the, for the first time in our study through this, uh, this fantastic letter that Paul has written to the, the church in Corinth. What's interesting is, is no, one, no one talks about the cost that comes with loving people. And what I mean by that is the, the cost that comes in, in loving people when they're struggling and, and watching them go through that struggle and, and how difficult that is. Uh, I think nearly every one of us could probably think of someone right now, someone that you know, someone that you, you care about that is going through a difficult time. Uh, maybe, maybe they're struggling with uh, a particular vice, a particular sin. Uh, maybe they're, they're addicted to alcohol or maybe to drugs, to uh, maybe uh, some kind of pornography or, uh, or maybe even just food and they just can't seem to overcome that. Or, or maybe you know someone whose struggle is with their own self-worth, where they just find it so hard to just accept themselves, to love themselves. Uh, and they just therefore struggle with that general sense, that general sense of being unloved. Maybe they're struggling with anxiety or they're struggling with depression uh, maybe, maybe the person you're thinking about is they just refuse to accept Jesus as their savior. That no matter how much you share with them and how close they seem, they just can't put their faith in Jesus. And that, that person could be a family member, could be a spouse or, or a child. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a coworker. Uh, maybe, maybe it's someone here today, uh, here at this church. And, and the hardest part, I think, is to see them struggle, to see them going through a difficult time, knowing that the answer that they're looking for is right there. That the, that the answer is, is simply trusting Jesus and it's right available to them. And, and there's a lot of different examples we could use for this. Uh, you know, you could compare it to someone being in quicksand and they're, and they're struggling trying to get out of the quicksand and yet a rope is right there attached to a, to a winch that will just pull them out and it's even got a loop in it so they don't even have to hold on to it tight. Just put your arm through it and it'll pull you out. Or, or maybe it's uh, someone who's drowning in a pool and they're flailing around that pool. And in reality, all they need to do is just stand up because they're in the shallow end. Uh, or, or maybe, maybe it's someone who's like begging for money and yet they have a wallet overflowing with cash. I mean, the, the, the sense here is they're struggling and they don't need to struggle because what they're looking for, what they need is, is available. I like this example, though, this illustration. It's, and, and some of you who, who wear windows on your faces will relate to this, but you're looking for your glasses. You can't find your glasses and therefore you can't see very well and they're just right on top of your head. Anyone experience that? I remember the first time I experienced that and I thought, oh, I'm getting old, right? But that's, we've all experienced that to some degree if you wear glasses and that's that sense of you can't see, you don't know what's around you and yet what you're looking for is right there. It's available. You already possess it. You now need just to use it. But instead, you're fumbling and you're stumbling with this blindness that you're under. And, and I think that that describes so many of us as believers in the sense of what we're struggling with as, as Christians. That we, we are looking for something 
that in fact we already possess, that we already have. And, and so since we don't know or don't know how to access it or use it, we end up going looking for it in a replacement, in something else. And, and so we don't see what's real. We don't see. And so we're blind and we're fumbling and stumbling through life as a result. And watching people, watching your loved ones go through that is hard. It's incredibly hard. In fact, the degree to which you love them is proportional to the degree to which you will struggle watching them struggle, or you will, you will be desperate for them to find hope. And no matter how much you, you speak to them and no matter how much you, you, you want them just to listen and to believe, you can't seem to get through to them. And I often think that's probably what, what Jesus felt. In, in Matthew 23, Jesus is sitting outside Jerusalem and he's overlooking Jerusalem and he laments. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I mean, I, I, can, I can hear and feel the, the desperation in his words when he says, you know, you people who, who prophets have been sent and you've killed them and messengers have been sent and you've stoned them. You people who, who I've longed to take you under my wing like a mother hen with her little chicks, but you were unwilling. You're refusing to come. You're refusing to, to let me love on you. And so you're struggling as a result of all that. And that's the desperation that we see in Jesus. Now, our minds might be drifting again to those other, other people, right? The people in our life that are struggling. But the reality is that's true for each and every one of us. It's our problem. I guarantee it. See, there, there are five things that Jesus promised in coming here. He, he came and he says, I promise you abundant life. I promise you peace. I promise you hope. I enjoy. I promise you rest. And I promise you freedom. He's promised us those things. And, and yet the reality is not one of us here is experiencing it to its fullness, in its totality. I say that because even the great apostle Paul was not experiencing it all. It says in Philippians 3 that, that I've not yet obtained it. I'm not yet living in the freedom, in the peace, in the rest, in the abundant life, and the, and the joy that God's given me. To a degree, yes, but not all of it. There's still more. And so he says, I press on. I want to grow. I want to continue to learn. And if that's true, the apostle Paul, it's true about you and I as well that there's still more for us to learn. There's still more for us to, to trust in him with. And that's, that's what I think our passage is about today, that, that Paul is thinking about God's people and he's imploring them to trust in that life that we have in Jesus, that, that we might be able to experience all that we already possess. Now, last time we were in this, this, this book, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, we saw Paul use the word beg when describing about sharing the gospel. He's begging them with this ministry of reconciliation. In our passage this morning, we're going to see that Paul uses the word urge, which carries the same meaning. It's a different word, but carries the same meaning as this word of begging or pleading. And so I think what we see here is that Paul is offering an intense begging, an intense pleading, a, a, a deep imploring that's coming from a place of desperation, a desperate heart for all of God's people, you and me, to experience all that God has for us. And I can relate to this. I, I've sat across from many people who are struggling, 
can't see what's in front of them because the glasses are sitting on their head, but they're not able or willing yet to put them down. They can't see what is already true of them. They can't see what they already possess. And so as a result, they're struggling, trying to look for it in somewhere else. And it's not working. And in those moments, there's a part of me, just, I wish there was something I could do. Maybe if I could shake them, maybe I could, could just say the right things, if I had the right verse, the right illustration, and I'm desperate for them, begging that they would simply trust Jesus in that moment. And so that's what we, we see here, because if we took this step of faith, if we are able to trust Jesus for what he's offering to us, we will be able to experience more than we could ever fathom. Because the reward of life in Jesus is greater than we can ever imagine. All right, let's, let's read our passage this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And Paul writes, In working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. And I'm going to pray straight out of the scriptures in Ephesians chapter 1. Lord Jesus, I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, that you will, that, so that we will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Lord, help our unbelief here. Help us to see clearly and understand clearly what it is you've offered to us so that we would trust in that. In your name we pray, amen. Well, to, to, I think to properly understand why Paul has to beg or urge in the first place, I think we have to understand that, that we're all facing an internal enemy called the flesh. You've heard us talk about the flesh quite a bit, but let's start with a definition of the flesh. And, and I'm going to ask you guys to share with me now, just shout out what are some of the, the definitions that you've understood or some of the characteristics of the flesh that you've understood so that we're all on the same page. So just go ahead and shout them out. What is the flesh? Pride. Pride. Okay, that could be a result of it. What else? Temptation. Temptation that's what it's doing, yep. Indwelling sin. There you are. Yep. Indwelling sin. Okay, good. What else? Self-sufficiency. Doing it on my own apart from Jesus. Living independent. Yeah, good. What else? Not forgiving. That will be a result of it. Yeah. Looking to other things as your source. So what I want us to see here is that the flesh is actually a thing. It's a noun, right? So, so when we think about pride or not forgiving, that's an action, that's a verb, and that's what the flesh will lead us to do. But the flesh is more than just behaviors. It's more than just a set of doings, right? And, and sometimes we've mistaken that. The flesh is, is only the sinful behaviors. In fact, they used to translate this word flesh to be sinful nature, which I think limits what our understanding of it can be. Because now we start to think about immoral things, right? We think about um, 
lying and cheating and pride and, and not forgiving and, and, and that sort of thing. We think about sinful, immoral acts, but the reality is, is the flesh is bigger than that. As, we, as someone else said, it's, it's independence. It's living on our own, our own self-reliance, our own abilities. And sometimes that stuff can look good. Sometimes we can be really kind in serving other people in order for us to get something back in return. And that would be flesh because it's not the action per se, it's rather the source. My own strength, my own abilities, or in, in Jesus, in Christ. And so the flesh is really our old, our old master. So when, when Nikki says it's indwelling sin, I think that's, that's really what it is. It's sin that, that dwells in me. And Romans 6 talks about how, how sin mastered me. It controlled you and I, that we were born slaves of it, slaves of sin, the noun. Not slaves of sinful behavior, but slaves of sin, the noun, slaves of the flesh, slaves of indwelling sin. And on that cross, something beautifully happened. Not only did Jesus die, but what happened to you and I on that cross? What happened? We died, but the old master didn't. Sin didn't die. The flesh didn't die on the cross. We died. The slave died on that cross. But that means that the slave is gone and we're new creations, but the old master is what? Still around. And sin is in you. It's in our bodies, Paul says, but it's not you. It's not who we are. And Romans chapter seven is a great treatise of this, great explanation of this, where Paul says, there's something that is in me, but not me. Because it's no longer I. I see this principle of sin dwelling in me that's tempting me, that's leading me astray, that's attacking me, but it's not who I am. And so it's in me, but not me. And it's the source of all temptations. Every sin, every sinful thought, every temptation you've ever had has come from not you, but from sin, from the flesh. And it's waging war, it says in Galatians 5, 17, against you so that you wouldn't do what you want to do. You wouldn't do what you please. And what you please is not the sin. Amen? Think about it. If you actually wanted to sin, then after you sinned, you'd be proud of it. And you'd, you'd get on social media and say, hey, everybody, I want you to know, I went on a bender last night and I gambled all my money away. <laughs> Hallelujah, praise the Lord. You don't do that. How do you feel after you sin? After you yell at your kids or, or you, uh, you cheat someone or you lie or, or you, you give in to some kind of sexual temptation. How do you feel afterwards? Feel miserable because you didn't do what you wanted to do. And that's what Paul's talking about in chapter seven because our hearts are good. Our hearts are new. We're born again. So there's something inside of me that's tempting me, but it sounds like me. It talks like me. It knows all my, my temptations and my nuances. It knows not to tempt me with country music. That's not going to work. I'm too, too holy and wise for that, right? But it's going to tempt me towards food, towards, you know, maybe video games or, or just, just running away and hiding in my room and all kinds of other things, maybe control or anger. It's going to tempt me in ways that are more susceptible to me, but it might be different for you. And we're all unique and different in that way but it's our most common enemy. It's what we face each and every day. And where, where indwelling sin, where the flesh draws its power from is the law. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the power of sin, the power of the flesh, the power of indwelling sin comes from the law, including God's law. 
So in Romans 7, it says again, apart from, apart from the law, talking about the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet in particular. Sin's got no power. The flesh has no power. So the flesh is always trying to put you and I under law, always trying to get you and I to perform. The thinking is, if I just measured up to the standard, if I just measured up to the expectation, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be loved and I'll be acceptable and everything will work for me and you'll love me and I'll love me and, and shame will be quiet and the flesh will be quiet and I'll be okay. But in that moment, my eyes have gotten off of Jesus onto myself, trying to measure up to a standard, hoping to be okay, and I've empowered sin all along the way. And this commandment, Paul says in Romans 7, verse 10, this commandment, which I thought was going to be life to me, I thought it was going to be my value and my worth and my security and my acceptance and my approval, I thought it was going to be life to me, proved to be death. More failure, more insecurity, more not good enough. For sin deceived me through that commandment, through that standard. And so it's always trying to trap you under the law. And, and I think essentially what it what does this is through condemnation, through attacking us. And that condemnation really could be summed up in one word, shame. It's shaming us. It's really that the voice of shame is the flesh. It's what the flesh is trying to do. So let's, let's put a definition on the board for what is shame. So we're really clear because I think shame is, has such a, a hold on so many people here. Shame is the insecurity and self-hatred that comes from the belief that you are fundamentally broken, damaged, flawed, ruined, dirty, sinful, unredeemable, and therefore unlovable and unacceptable. The insecurity, the unease, the fear, the vulnerability, the self-hatred, the, the, the attacks you have on yourself coming from the belief, not from the truth, but the belief, the perception that you are fundamentally at your core, the very essence of who you are, that you're broken. You've been damaged beyond repair. That you're, you're flawed. There's, there's, there's just something not right about you. And therefore, you're, you've been ruined, maybe by what you've done or by what others have done. And so you're dirty, you're sinful, and you're unredeemable. There is no hope for you. And because all that's true, at least that's what you believe about yourself, you are therefore not just unloved, unlovable not capable of being loved, not capable of being accepted because you're that fundamentally flawed and broken. That's what shame is. Now, many people confuse shame with guilt. And they kind of use them synonymously and interchangeably. And, and, but there's a difference. They're not the same thing. Guilt is about what I do. It's the regret or the remorse that I might feel about my performance. So I did something wrong. And I'm disappointed in my performance. It's all about my behavior. But shame is about who I am. And it's a disappointment in my identity and I, who I perceive that I am. So it's not just I'm disappointed in what I've done. I'm disappointed in me and myself. And I've let everyone down. Even if they don't know it, I'm going to let them down. 
And then now there's this fear and insecurity. I can't let you see. I can't let you know what I know. And really this, this shame, it, it's true of all of us because it's rooted back in the garden. The last, last verse of Genesis 2, verse 25, the last verse, chapter 2, God lets us know that husband and wife, man and, and, and woman, were both naked and unashamed. There was no shame in the garden. There was nothing, no perception, no belief that there's anything wrong with them. Everything they knew about themselves was, I'm good. I'm made in the image of God. I'm loved. I'm accepted. I have no reason to hide. But the moment they sin, the moment they eat of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, the moment they choose life on their own terms, they receive what God promised them. And what did God promise would happen the day they went on their own, their own way? The day you eat, you will surely, and they experience death in that moment. That shame was on them. And we know that because of the reaction. They put on the first masks. They covered up fig leaves, not to hide from God, but to hide from each other. Can't let you see my nakedness. I can't let you see me. And so they're hiding with these masks to each other. And then behind the bushes when God shows up, because they're desperately under this shame. I don't measure up. I'm flawed and I'm broken and I can't let you see what I see. And so shame has controlled mankind ever since. And the result is that you and I, the shame that we experience could be a result of a, a few different things. It could be the result of a, a few key major moments in your life. Maybe, maybe it was how you were treated as a child by your parents. Maybe it was, there was some kind of a, abuse or, or emotional or physical or even sexual abuse in your past. And there's these major moments that you can point to and say, that, that defined who I am. That betrayal, that rejection, that abuse, that's who I am now. That defines who I am. And, and, and so now what happens is we start to, to let those instances define us. Or it could be the result of just a few uh, small, not a few, uh, many small things. Just little comments that you've had your entire life or little ideas that you've had your entire life. It's sort of the idea that one giant rock that weighs one ton is equal to a dump truck full of sand that weighs one ton. Every little grain of sand on its own doesn't seem like much, but when you put it all together, it all adds up. And so maybe you've had that, nothing you can point to, but just little tiny messages of shame over time. That's the one I relate to. See, shame, shame has been my constant companion as long as I've known. And it has, it has, quite frankly, kicked my butt on too many occasions. I've given into it. I've listened to it too often. And, and I have a few significant events that I could point to that, that I would say surely didn't help. Mostly, the shame that I've experienced is the product of just small messages that I've perceived. Not even messages that others have said to me, but what I've perceived about myself. And so I've perceived that I'm not strong enough or good enough or, or I don't measure up or I, I'm not that important, that no one really would like me. No one really wants me around. That at best, they tolerate me. And so I feel a lot of insecurity and, and, and unsureness as a result of all that shame. And that's something that I've struggled with my entire life. Now, it's gotten better. 
gotten a lot better as I've known who I am in Jesus and who Jesus is in me, and, and I don't let shame control me. But remember, the flesh didn't go away. I died, but the old master didn't. And so the shame in the flesh is still around, and it's still trying to attack me. It seems like almost every day it shows up when I least expect it. Last week's a great example of that. Last week, I thought we had a, a pretty special time here, the, the, uh, you know, together as a church family. And, and the message that God put on my heart, I, I delivered and shared with you. And, and, and I was excited about sharing it. And I thought it went well until later on that afternoon, I'm driving around. And all of a sudden, I just get hit by these thoughts of, I screwed up. I didn't share it right. I didn't say this. I, I blew that. I should have included this part. You know, it would have been really helpful to him if I shared this part. And just one after another, just all these thoughts came after me. And, then, and I'm driving. I just start to grip the steering wheel and start white knuckling it and twisting it and just thinking, man, like I'm just the anger and the frustration is building because it's the voice of shame. Because now I know, though, that that's what it is. It's the voice of the shame. Of shame. It's the flesh. It's not me, and it's most certainly not my father. I don't have to listen to it. I can reject that message, and it will pass the attacks. And within a few minutes, I was, I was back to normal. But for a moment there, this condemnation, this shame was overwhelming. And so if we don't know that and don't acknowledge that, shame will dominate us. And, and the outcome of that shame will be all kinds of things. It will be to, to mistrust people because I can't let them too close. Because if I let them too close, they're going to see beyond the mask. They're going to see beyond what I'm trying to hide behind. And they're going to see the real me and they'll be pretty disgusted by it. They'll be turned off by it. So I don't trust people. I don't even trust God. I'm hiding from people. Or, or I have all this self-hatred where maybe I'm even hurting myself. Maybe I'm cutting myself. Maybe, maybe I have these thoughts of suicide to punish myself that way. Or maybe I'm, I'm abusing food or alcohol. Maybe there's self-sabotage where, where I'm trying to actually make people reject me. In a, in a twisted way, it's where I feel safest. You see, when, when people are loving me and I have all this shame, I'm thinking, what's their angle? What do they want from me? How are they going to hurt me? How are they going to abuse me? But if they're treating me poorly, well, that, that's normal, and I can expect that. And so sometimes we, we self-sabotage. We fail intentionally because that's where the relief comes in. I had one lady I was, I was talking with, and she said, I feel most comfortable when I've been yelled at and punished. Because when I don't get that, I'm waiting for it to come. And it's, it's uneasy. So she would actually keep pushing and pushing and pushing until she got the angry outburst as a result. And then she could say, oh, it's good now. I'm okay. Or, or I become desperately looking for the affirmation from other people. Will you love me, Terry? If I, if I act this way and do this, will, will I be okay with you? And what do I need to do to get Terry to love me? And I strive and I struggle to get Terry to love me. Except when that love comes, I don't trust it. Because I don't deserve it. I'm unlovable. And so I take that love and I kind of put it to the side. And I'm still desperate for that love. 
It's like being thirsty, getting a glass of water and putting it to the side and never drinking it, still being thirsty. So I keep looking for more and more love and affirmation, but never actually accepting it. And so then I got to comfort my pain. This is where food and, and alcohol and drugs or pornography or, or even just social media, TV, watching movies, just, just the endless scroll so I don't have to think about what I'm struggling with. I think the Apostle Paul understood this battle. I think he understood it more than most because think about it. I mean, he called himself the chief of sinners because of how he persecuted the church. The people who he's fighting for and loving, at one point, he was responsible for their imprisonment and their death. And so that, that shame was there. I believe he felt that at times. How could he not? And he probably saw the same struggle of shame with each person. And so that's what leads us now back to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1. Because what we see here is Paul says, and, and working together with him, with God. That word there, working together, the, the, the root word there, the Greek word there is where we get the word synergy from. To, to work and energize alongside of. And so Paul's saying that I'm working alongside God here. And because of that, I'm going to urge you. Which means it's not just Paul who's urging us, but who else? God is. Do you see it there? Man, when I saw that this week, it jumped off the page that God is sitting there and he's urging me. He's begging me. He's pleading with me. He's desperate for me to do something. And notice here, he's, he's talking to believers at this point. He's not talking about people that maybe one day they're going to get saved. Just one day will they receive the gospel of salvation. No, he's talking to people who've already received it. He's talking to the church, to the bride of Christ, to you and me. And he's, he's appealing to people, begging them to trust him, knowing that if they did, if they, if they received what God was giving to them and they actually enjoyed it and used it, it would make such a difference in their lives. But if they don't, then he says it will be in vain. Right? He's urging that you not receive the gospel of grace in vain. That, that word in, or phrase in vain, is, it means basically like a hollow faith. And, and so it doesn't mean that there is no faith. It's just a faith that goes nowhere, a faith that produces nothing. In a way, what you could say is what he's talking about are, are unbelieving believers, believers, saints, children of God, and yet who have professed the belief but are not living out of that belief. And so because of that, they're, they're possessing the life of God. They're possessing the holiness. They're possessing the love and acceptance. It is theirs, but they're not experiencing it because they're not trusting in it. And therefore, it's, it's a hollow faith. It's in vain as a result of that. There's a great example of that with the children of Israel. We read in Exodus chapter 3, where God speaks to Moses in that burning bush. He says, Moses, I've, I've tasked, I've chosen you to lead my people. Because I want to, and again, the, the emphasis is on God here. I'm going to lead my people out of Egypt. He didn't say into the wilderness. I'm going to lead my people out of Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, and the many other ites that are there into the promised land. That's for them. And that promised land is not heaven. 
Please understand, promised land is not a picture of heaven. It's the picture of abundant life here today. I say that because the writer of Hebrews in chapters three and four is encouraging you and I to live in Canaan and live in the promised land right now. Not when you die, but right now. So in John 10, 10, where he says, I've come to give you life, that's what Canaan's a picture of. And so God says, I'm going to lead them out of Egypt and bring them into Canaan. So it was theirs. It was their land. He'd given it to them when he gave it to Abraham. It was their birthright. Well, they, they leave Egypt, cross the Red Sea, incredible miracle by, you know, a guy looked like Charlton Heston raising up his arms and the water splitting and all that happened there. And they get across the desert in pretty quick time. And now he sends 12 spies, Joshua, Caleb, and 10 other people. And they go and they check out the land. And, and what do Joshua and Caleb say? Let's go. They see the milk and honey, but they also see the giants. But they say, let's go. Why? Because God's given us the land. They saw the, the situation, but they saw it from God's perspective. And it didn't matter how big the giants were. It didn't matter how big the armies, how fortified the cities were. They had God. But the other 10, what did they see? They saw the milk and the honey, but they saw the, the giants. And they said, we can't go. Because they saw the same situation, but from their own perception their own vantage point. We are but grasshoppers in their eyes. We don't stand a chance against those giants. Let's not go. And so the land that was theirs by birthright, they possessed it by birthright. They didn't get to experience because they didn't believe. They didn't get to trust and they didn't get to experience the, that freedom and that abundant life, even though it was theirs. They were in, in essence, unbelieving believers. And so like having a, a pantry full of, of food and a fridge full of healthy food, good food, and yet diving and eating the, the dumpster food. That's what we're doing. We've got everything we need in Jesus, but we're looking for all those things in all these other places. And so we don't believe and therefore we don't experience what we already possess because we choose to believe the voice of the flesh and the shame that condemns us for it. And so through shame, flesh is controlling us to, to look for life in people, look for life in my job, look for life in my bank account, look for life in this world and what it has to offer me. So I live and die on how my sports teams are doing or how work is going or, or the weather or, or you know, government, and I'm, I'm desperately looking for life in the world around me. Or I'm looking to protect myself. The flesh will get you to try to make sure that you're somewhat safe, guarded up, walls up, keep people away at a distance. Don't trust this person. Don't trust that. Don't trust anybody. They're playing you. They have an angle. Don't give in to that. Don't listen to that. They're going to hurt you. They're just trying to manipulate you. And so I'm guarded. I'm protecting myself. So I don't lose what little I have or I don't get more hurt. Or the third thing it's going to do is numb. Comfort. Just eat some more. Just, just hide away. Do whatever you can just to feel better. And it might work for a little while. It might work just for that little brief moment where there's a little bit of relief. The problem is it leaves you in worse shape afterwards. Because the wages of sin is death. The flesh only offers one thing. Jesus says in John, John 6, 
that the flesh profits nothing. Because all it can offer you is death. It looks good, nice shiny object, but when you get there, it's that mirage. It's not real. So we miss out on experiencing that life of Jesus. Keep a finger there in 2 Corinthians and turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, James talking about this very thing where we were not experiencing what we already possess. So beginning in verse 19, he says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Right? Be patient. Be gracious. Which can only be done listening and trusting in the Spirit. But when we're trusting in the flesh, when we're listening to the flesh, we're going to be filled with anger, filled with being too quick in, in response and not paying attention, not listening. So he's, he's encouraging us, be, uh, be slow to speak, be slow to anger. For the anger of man, the anger of the flesh, does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, just put aside how this world lives. Don't trust in that. Don't live that way anymore. In the humility, receive is that word receive? We're going to see that again. Receive, trust in the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Trust in what you already possess and you'll experience that freedom that you're looking for. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. The hearers are people who are, have professed the faith in Christ and they are believers. They are saved, but they're not living that way. They're living their faith in vain, in a hollow way. Verse 23, for anyone who is a hearer of the word, but not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was. So you have a moment where, where you, maybe you read the word or, or you hear a message or someone says something and you say, right, yeah, okay, I'm loved by God, right. But the moment you turn from that, you forget it. And so now I'm unloved. I got to go back to Terry and get Terry's love. But he's a hard man to please. Am I right? Amen, right? So, so now, now I'm going to, now maybe Brian will love me. But Brian's love is great, but not enough. So I got to get Isaac to love me. And I'm, I'm desperately trying to get love from everybody, but no matter how much they love me, it's never enough. Oh, right, Namir. God loves me. Good, good, good. Okay. But, I, but Ian's not loving me very well, guys. And I've forgotten about God's love. That's what James is talking about here. Is you're hearers, but not doers. Doers are people that live out of the truth that you are a loved person. You are a new creation. You are good. And Christ lives inside you. That's what it means to be a doer. So let's return now to, to chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. In verse 2. Paul's going to quote a passage out of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 49, verse 8. And he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. This is God speaking to Israel. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. So he, he quotes the verse. And now what he's going to do in the rest of verse 2 is he's going to give his little commentary on it. He's going to repeat certain parts, but with emphasis. And he says, behold. It's, it's like, pay attention right now. 
He's, he's emphasizing, he's highlighting. He says, no matter where your mind is gone right now, pay attention because this is important. Behold, now. Right now, today. Not, not just in the future, not just when you're, you're standing with St. Peter at the pearly gates or, or after you've died or, or even when you've gotten your life sorted out and you've overcome these struggles. No, no, no. Now, today. In the midst of all your struggles. In the midst of all the temptation. Especially in the midst of your failure. Behold, right now is the acceptable time. There's no better moment than right now. And then he says it again, behold, now is a day of salvation. That word salvation, the root word of that is sozo. It means to be made whole, to be rescued. I love that. I really do. I mean, think about what, do, what does this world need? What do people need? They need to be rescued, to be made whole. Because they have been damaged. They've been beaten up. They've been chewed up and spat out. And Jesus says, today is the day I want to make you whole. Today is the day I want to rescue you. And you see, the reality is he did that on the cross. It's done. It's the finished work. Remember what Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. Loosely translated, there's nothing left for you and I to do. It's ours. We possess it. The question is, will we receive it? Will we actually trust in it? And that's what he's begging. He's urging, receive this grace. Trust in this grace. Live out of this grace of God. Now's the time to receive it. Quickly turn over to, to Romans chapter 5. Paul, on the same idea here, I think he's, he's speaking to the church in Rome about this idea of receiving the grace of God. In Romans 5 verse 17 He's contrasting being in Adam and now being in Christ. And so the first half of the verse is what's true of us and when we were in Adam. We're not in Adam anymore as believers, but at one point we were. And it says, for if by the transgression of the one, of Adam, that one sin in the garden when he ate from the no-no tree, death reigned. Death had dominion. Death ruled over you and I through that one. Through Adam's sin, we sinned. Through his death, we died. Through his condemnation, we were condemned. Because he was shamed, we were shamed. That was the mess we were in. But then we were rescued, right? We were taken out of Adam. We were placed in the Christ. We were crucified and we were buried with him. And so the good news is the second half of the verse, much more. If that was true in Adam, much more in Christ, those who receive, those who lay hold of, those who possess the abundance of grace and of Literally, the abundance of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So we see here there's, there's an abundance of grace. What's grace? What's grace? Unmerited favor. What else? The life of Jesus. The empowering presence of Jesus. It's his unconditional love. No strings attached. That's grace. And then we have the gift of righteousness. Can you earn a gift? Do you get your paycheck and go to your employer? Oh, thank you. Oh, this is so unexpected. I didn't see this coming. Is it my, it's not even my birthday. Wow. No, you go, I've earned this. I deserve this. Well, it's a wage of sin. It's what you've earned. But righteousness is a gift. 
You don't earn a gift. It's unmerited by nature, by definition. And it's a gift of righteousness. And righteousness is to be who you ought to be, to be right with God, to be loved and accepted, to be lovable and acceptable. It's the answer to shame that you are right today in Christ. As my friend says, on your worst day, in the midst of your worst sin, you are still right with God because it's by grace, through faith, apart from works. And so together, if we, if we receive, if we trust in this grace, this empowering presence of God living inside of me, and this gift of righteousness that I'm a new creation, loved, accepted, already approved in Jesus, that's who I am. When I leave the mirror and I walk away from it, but I'm remembering it now, now I face a struggle. But wait, I'm not alone. I remember now, even when I'm not looking in the mirror, I remember Christ is in me. And Christ in me is sufficient to the challenge. And this challenge is hard because they're hating me. They're, they're against me and they're, 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 I've let them down. And I've failed. But the reality is I'm still righteous. I haven't forgotten who I am. And now I'm a doer of the word. I'm living according to who I am. I'm living out of what I already possess in Jesus. And so we experience that freedom. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. I always like to quote C.S. Lewis because it makes you sound smarter. <laughs> but this is from the, the, uh, a book called The Weight of Glory, which is just a collection of essays. And that first one being is called The, the Weight of Glory. And he says this, the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds a notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that it's a notion that has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and has no part in the Christian faith. See, too often we, we have this idea that I shouldn't really enjoy things, that I, I should really live with less to be a better Christian, I, I shouldn't have nice things. I should have really bad things because then I'm really trusting Jesus in that way. I'm, somehow poverty makes you more holy. And he says, if that's crept into Christianity, and it has, if it's crept into Christianity, it's because of the Stoics and a, and a philosopher named Kant, but not because of Jesus. It doesn't actually belong in the gospel. He goes on and he says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Think about it. Think about when you've been tempted and you think, man, that temptation, it's overpowered me. It's just too strong, that desire I have for this thing. And C.S. Lewis says, no, no, actually your desire is too weak. Here's why he says that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We settle for what the flesh offers us, a poor, cheap substitute like being thirsty and being offered Diet Pepsi. Okay, I'll take it. I mean, it's not even Pepsi. It's Diet Pepsi, right? 
when the whole time Jesus is offering us the real thing. No pun intended. I'm sorry. I, I said it, and I thought, oh, dear. But I'm not, not going to go there. But he's offering us real life, infinite joy, infinite rest, infinite hope and peace and strength and encouragement. And you already have it. It's like the glasses are already on your head. You just need to use them. You just need to trust Jesus now. And when we do that, when we, when we experience that abundance of grace and the abundance of the gift of righteousness, when that faith is not in vain, we reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And the outcome of that is we begin to experience maturity. We don't, we don't take ourselves too seriously. It's okay to laugh at ourselves. It's okay to joke about ourselves. It's okay to fail and make mistakes. You don't have anything riding on your performance anymore. And neither do other people. And so you can offer them grace and love. You're able to receive that love. You're able to risk being engaged in a community now where you're able to love others and, and be around others even if they don't have all this together. But you can risk it. You can forgive. You can experience peace, real peace. Not peace based on circumstances, not based on this world, not based on what you're able to accomplish or produce, but real peace in Jesus. And, and, and hope and rest and joy and healing and restoration of our souls as we deal with our past or even our present as people are hurting us with the disappointments that we continue to face in this world. He is more than enough. And all, all that he's asking is that we trust him, that we, that we live as if he's in us, because he is. And we live as if we are already fully loved, because we are. And he's begging us, he's pleading with us, God and Paul, and today I am. I'm begging and I'm pleading and I'm urging you and for myself that we would just trust and live what is true. Let's pray. Father, the, I think our problem is it's too good to be true. It's too immense because you're too immense. How can you love us? How can you live in us? And yet it is true. So Lord, our prayer is we believe. Now help our unbelief. We receive. We have received it. We possess it. Now help us to use it. Help us to experience it. Remind us over and over again. Interrupt our minds. Interrupt our thoughts when the flesh is attacking us, when shame is that, that voice of condemnation. And remind us that we are loved and you are here and you are in us. And we can live in that freedom. In your name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. 
Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.